Hey everyone, welcome to That You May Know Him, a podcast where we are committed to proclaiming biblical truth that helps you know Christ better than ever before. Guys, this is Blake, host of the That You May Know Him podcast, and welcome back to Two for Ten, the show where we study the Bible one book at a time, one verse at a time. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where we're not only going to learn about the circumstances under which the book of Revelation was written, but also the three words that the early Christians would not say. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, This is a big one, so stick around. It's all coming up today on 2 for 10. Let's get it going. Hey guys, real quick, as always, before we get started, if you're watching us on YouTube, please don't forget to check out our podcast, the That You May Know Him podcast. It's available on every major podcast player. Also, if you're listening to the podcast, please don't forget to check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, many of you know, I recently wrote a book with my good friend, Dr. Richard Cox. It's called Secularism, the Church, and the Way Forward, and it is now available. You can find links to it right on the homepage of our website, thatyoumayknowhim.com. If you would be so kind, if you read it, to leave us a review or a rating, either on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, that would be terrific, and we really would appreciate it. Last thing. One of the issues, one of the things that we're going to be covering in today's episode comes from Revelation 1.10, and it's something that I wrote about recently. That article regarding the Lord's Day is on our website, thatyoumayknowhim.com. If you go to the website and click on the Read button at the top, it'll take you right to our blog. It's the most recent article I wrote back in early June. It really, really is insightful. It gets into the history of this phrase, the Lord's Day, and it's meant to help you understand what is meant by it. We're going to be covering it today, but the article is probably more in-depth than we're going to be able to get. So if you have a chance, please do check it out. That's it for our announcements. Now let's get in to the book of Revelation. All right, guys. So in the last couple of episodes, we have talked all about how the book of Revelation comes to us in the form of a letter. How it was written down by John, but the revelation came from Jesus Christ. And the letter was then sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor that it was intended for. We've also talked about how the letter wasn't just from John or from Jesus. The letter was from God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. In today's passage, we're going to learn more about the circumstances under which John wrote this letter, under which he received this revelation from Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, grab it. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. They go like this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. What we learn right off the bat when we read verses 9 and 10, first of all, is John was in prison when he received this revelation from Jesus. He was in prison on an island called Patmos. Patmos is a small island on the Aegean Sea. It's about 13 miles around. And it was an island in the first century that Roman emperors and the Roman Empire would send political prisoners to. It was sort of like a work island. Think of Alcatraz, the famous island in San Francisco, only you're not just sitting in your cell. You're doing hard physical labor every day. We know already at this point that John was an old man. He probably would have been very feeble, and he had already endured a lot of physical suffering for Jesus. Most early church historians believe that John had already been beaten, maybe already been boiled alive and different things like this before he wrote this letter and was in prison. But we know one thing for sure. John was a political prisoner. How do we know that? Because he says that he was in prison on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You can be certain that in first century Rome, if you were in prison because of your religious beliefs, you were in prison because of political reasons. What exactly do I mean by that? How do these two things come together? Well, look, in the first century, it was very, very prominent for Roman emperors to be worshipped as deities. In fact, a little bit of a history lesson here for you. There was a man named Julius Caesar who lived before the turn of the first century. And because of his great conquests as the Roman emperor, people started to say of him, he must be a god. He must be divine. Maybe we should worship him. Julius Caesar actually didn't mind this much at all. And he began to receive the worship of people in his kingdom. This carried on with his nephew, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, who also received regular worship from people around the empire throughout his life. They considered him, and they began to consider him more and more widely to be a deity. This continued well into the first century, and Roman emperor worship became not just something that was accepted and normal. It became first a very common thing, and then later on in life, a mandate. Now we're going to say about more about that in just a second. But before we get there, let's just circle back to one thing that John says. He was in prison on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And as he writes to, this, to these churches from prison, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Many of us today think of ourselves as partners in the kingdom. We know that the kingdom of God was ushered in by Jesus Christ, but it hasn't fully arrived yet. We live in this sort of middle time when the kingdom of God is manifest on the earth in various times, in various ways, and during various seasons amongst various groups of people. But we know that there's a day coming when the kingdom of God will be fully seen and fully revealed. In fact, that is what Christians are supposed to live for. 
We're supposed to be people who live not for the past or even for the present, but for the future. We're supposed to be people of great hope who, because we live for the future, we tend to create environments that usher in the kingdom here and now. But we never set all of our hope on our experiences in this life. No, our hope is in the future when the kingdom will be fully revealed when Jesus appears. How many of you have ever looked at your brother or sister in Christ and considered them to be your partner in the tribulation or in the patient endurance that are in Jesus? Many Christians have no problem thinking of themselves as kingdom warriors. But have you, have you ever thought of yourself, or when was the last time you thought of yourself, as someone who was sojourning through tribulation? And that that was actually part of your calling as a Christian, to sojourn through tribulation and through patient endurance. Through patient endurance. And when was the last time you actually looked around and considered your brothers and sisters in Christ to be your partners in enduring tribulation with patience and you their partner. It's a really, really important thing. And it just drives home the point that we as believers aren't living for this present age. We're living for the future. We are partners in the kingdom, but also in tribulation and in patient endurance. All right, now let's get on to verse 10, where John, I'll just read it one more time, says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. We already know that John was in prison for his religious beliefs, which means he was a political prisoner of the Roman Empire. What does it mean that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day? Look, for centuries, Christians have interpreted the phrase the Lord's day to mean that John was in prison on a Sunday, that on a Sunday he was in prison and he was in the spirit. Many scholars point to extra-biblical 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century, actually not 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century church fathers, extra-biblical sources to say the Lord's Day means Sunday. And it's true that many extra-biblical writings from the early centuries say that the Christian church began to adopt its official day of worship as a Sunday. Now look, I'm not here to debate which day the church should worship. In fact, I think that the New Testament very clearly teaches that debating about which day a church gathers is pointless. It's not what we're supposed to do. Sadly, entire denominations have split and new denominations have been formed over this issue. The fact of the matter is, is that in the New Testament, we see the church gathering, in some cases, daily, daily. They did often gather on Saturdays and on Sundays, but we also see them gathering on all sorts of days. The only time in the New Testament when Sunday is specifically mentioned, it's never referred to as the Lord's Day. If this is referring to Sunday, it's the only place that does so. The New Testament was written mostly by Jewish men, and they had a very specific phrase for Sunday. They called it the first day of the week. That's what they called it. On times in the New Testament, at, or in places in the New Testament, where we see the church gathering on the first day of the week, particularly in Acts 20, they were, they were gathering at night. Which means, if you know anything about Jewish days and how they work, days begin at sunset and days end at sunset. So that means 
that if the church was gathered at night on the first day of the week, they were gathered on a Saturday night. Again, that's not the point, but I just want to reiterate, there's nothing in the New Testament that clearly says that the Lord's Day refers to Sunday. And in fact, I think there is ample evidence that points to this phrase having a very different meaning. Let me read you this phrase in Greek. I had to write it down. The phrase in Greek for the Lord's Day, can I even find it? Here it is, is the phrase te kuriake hemera. It means the Lord's Day, but it's, it's interesting the way it's phrased. You see, there's another similar phrase used throughout the New Testament. It's the phrase the day of the Lord. It's a noun followed by another noun. This phrase the word Lord is actually an adjective followed by a noun in Greek. This is the exact same phrase that was used in the exact same way by an emperor who reigned late in the first century who made a certain holiday official. The emperor's name was Domitian. And the holiday that he sort of changed and adopted into this new thing was originally called the Emperor's Day. Remember I told you that all through the first century, emperor worship became a more and more common thing in the Roman Empire, up until the point where it actually became mandated toward the end of the first century. That mandate came from the emperor Domitian, who decided, you know what, it's not good enough for me that some people worship me. It's not good enough that in the last 70 years we've built these centers for worship in all these major cities around the empire for people to go and worship the emperor as a god, as a deity, I'm actually going to make it a mandate. I'm going to make it something that is required for all citizens. I'll have you know that the first center for divine worship, the first place that was built in the Roman Empire with the specific designation for being a center for emperor worship was built in Asia Minor. In 29 AD, in a city called Pergamum, one of the cities, one of the churches that is addressed in the book of Revelation is the church that was at Pergamum. So let me tell you just one more quick story. It's the first century. Domitian is now the emperor, and he takes a holiday that had been around for, for a while at this point called the Emperor's Day, a day for all the people of Rome to celebrate the emperor to be thankful for him, to sort of loud him and to celebrate him. And he changes the name of that day. He changes it from the Emperor's Day to the Lord's Day. And he requires at that point people from all around the empire to come on that day to their local center for divine worship and swear fealty to him. The way they had to swear fealty was simple. They had to come to their center for divine worship they had to raise their right hand and they had to say three words. Caesar is Lord. And then they would take incense. They would throw it up in the air. And they, this would be sort of like a prayer offering to the emperor. Well, Christians in the first century could not say those three words. Caesar is Lord. For the simple fact that they believed that the only person who was worthy of that title was Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll have you know that the early church, the early, early church, adopted their own sort of saying, their own sort of special slogan, their own sort of anthem. 
And it was something that they said all the time and they repeated to one another. And it was very short and very simple. And it was only three words long. The anthem of the early church were the words, Jesus is Lord. They would say this to each other. They would greet one another and say goodbye to one another with this expression, with this phrase, Jesus is Lord. That was their banner. So my friends, listen, a lot of this book, the reason that this book was written, one of the main reasons was to help Christians who were about to endure great suffering remain faithful to God no matter what. There are all sorts of stories from the early church of Christians who refused to say the words Caesar is Lord, who refused to offer fealty to someone in place of Jesus Christ because they knew that being faithful to Jesus Christ was worth more than anything. Many Christians gave their lives for this reason, for the simple fact that they would not say the three words Caesar is Lord. As time went on and this holiday became more and more prominent, it became almost guaranteed that you were going to either be put in prison or killed if you refused to say these words. So just imagine, John is on the island called Patmos. It's now the Lord's day. He knows that the church, these churches in Asia Minor that he has pastored for years are about to endure some of the greatest suffering. They're about to go through the greatest test that they have ever endured. And he's in the spirit and he's praying for them in the spirit, surely making intercession for them. And it's at that moment that he hears a sound, a voice coming from behind him. And it sounds like a trumpet. And it's at that moment that he began to receive a revelation from Jesus Christ himself to send to the seven churches to encourage them, to strengthen them, to stay faithful. John's partners in tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance received a special message from Jesus Christ through their pastor, John, to be encouraged to stay faithful and to not give in or give up. To remember that we as Christians don't live for the here and now. We live for the future. I'm not sure how many of us in the West today would pass that test that the early Christians, many of them passed, even though it meant giving up their lives. But there's no doubt in my mind, and we'll see this as the book goes on, that this book was written to encourage them to stay faithful. And as things get ever more secular and our, as our societies turn ever more away from God, we are going to have opportunities to see what we really love and what we really cherish and who we really are loyal to Jesus Christ or something or someone else. That's why this book was written. And I hope that as you continue to read it and study it along with me, it will give you great strength and great encouragement that, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what comes, you will stay loyal to Jesus Christ. And because of that, other people will be won over to him. My friends, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of 2 for 10. That was Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Next week, when we're back for episode 7 of 2 for 10, we will be in verses 11 and 12. And we will start to meet by name and be introduced to by name the seven churches that this wonderful letter are written to. Until next time, stay blessed. Live loved 
and thank you for watching and listening to That You May Know It. Know Him podcast is produced by That You May Know Him Ministries, Durham, North Carolina. You can visit our website at thatyoumayknowhim.com. Yeah.